Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest growing white collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Bill Barr last night gave an interview to ABC News and basically said, these tweets are not helpful. They're making it hard for me to do my job. And the media is running with this as if he was saying they're making it hard for me to do my job of impartial justice under the law. But that's not what he said. What he said is they're making it hard for me to do my job, which is, apparently doing whatever Trump tells him to do. This idea that Barr is pushing back on Trump is just a simple lie. The Washington Post just bought it hook, line, and sinker. In their opening paragraph in their article about this, they said, this is a remarkable public rebuke of Trump. It's not. It's not. He's, what he's saying is, Donald... When you keep telling people that I'm your flunky, it makes me look like a flunky, which makes me a little less effective as a flunky because I've got to have the appearance of not being a flunky. I mean, he's, he admitted that he had intervened in the Roger Stone case. Now, he's saying he did it before he heard from Trump. I don't believe that any more than, well, we know that he lied to us about the Mueller report. He covered up Iran-Contra back in 1992, the last time he was attorney general covered up Iraq gate back in 1992. He shut down at least six different investigations into Donald Trump when he came into the Department of Justice, according to you know multiple reports. He swapped out prosecutors on Michael Flynn so that the, so that the so-called Justice Department would go easy on him. He has given speeches saying that he believes in the unitary executive. His 40-page, you know, please, Donald, hire me thing talks about this specifically. He thinks that the executive office essentially should be the king, that the president is the king. And this is, by the way, a commonly held belief among authoritarians, among people who believe that authority figures should run a country. Now, whether Barr is an authoritarian leader or an authoritarian follower, I'll leave to the psychologists and people like John Dean who've written books about it. John Dean wrote a brilliant book about this called Conservatives Without a Conscience. But he is an authoritarian. And he seems to be, in part, informed in that worldview by his deep embed into the right wing of the Catholic Church. And I'm saying this not to 
pick on Catholics, this was the speech that Bill Barr gave and said right up front, these are not his exact words, but close, that he's informed by his Catholic faith. Well, the Catholic Church is not just a hierarchy, it's a patriarchy. There are no female citizens of the nation, the Vatican. Although the Vatican is on the United Nations Council that oversees birth control policy for the UN. Bill Barr created this investigation of his own department with the U.S. Attorney John Durham. He has traveled around the world with John Durham looking for dirt on Joe Biden. Bill Barr has. The Washington Post reports Trump has become more insistent that Durham finishes work soon. According, and this is in the same article, by the way, that says that this was a remarkable public rebuke. Well, it's 29 paragraphs into the article that we get to the real stuff. Trump has become more insistent that Durham finishes work soon, according to people familiar with the discussion. Trump, these people said, wants to be able to use whatever Durham finds as a cudgel in his reelection campaign. Apparently, up until a few days ago, he thought he was going to be running against Joe Biden. Now, apparently, he thinks he's going to be running against Mike Bloomberg, and he's kind of freaked out about that. Mike Bloomberg tweeting to Trump yesterday, we know the same people, I'm paraphrasing this from memory, we know the same people in New York, and I can tell you, behind your back, they're laughing at you because they consider you a carnival barking clown. And he points out that Trump inherited a fortune and squandered it on stupid business deals, declared bankruptcy multiple times. Nobody in New York takes Donald Trump seriously. Not nobody, but most people, let's say. I think Trump carried by a very, very small minority. Trump did not carry even his own congressional district in New York City. In the presidential race, he, he lost hugely there. Bill Barr said, Donald Trump has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case. It's an obvious lie. I mean, you know, we've got the receipts for this lie. Which brings us to point two of my rant this morning. And that is Donald Trump saying, he just tweeted this morning, and this is the thing that's got the corporate media, got their panties in a wad, as the old expression goes. He tweeted, quoting Barr, right? He puts it in quotes, quote, the president has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case, close quote, you know, attributed to A.G. Barr, Attorney General Barr. And then Trump, in his own voice, this is all one tweet, says, this doesn't mean that I do not have, as president, the legal right to do so. I do. But so far, I've chosen not to. And there's all these people, you know, these commentators on TV and whatnot who are saying, no, he doesn't have the legal right to do that. Here is how democracies die. And this is a clue to what we're going to have to do after Donald Trump leaves office, whether it's next January or whether it's four years from next January, assuming our republic survives, which I'm very hopeful for. Institutions like the Department of Justice, you know, the Department of Justice has traditionally been completely separate from political considerations for good reason. I mean, that's the, the hallmark of a banana republic is that the president, the leader, the prime minister, whatever he may call himself or she, manipulates the criminal justice system to reward friends and punish enemies. That is the hallmark of authoritarian governance. And they use the institutions like the Department of Justice. Well, institutions are protected by both laws and written policies and traditions. And those written policies, in many cases, don't have the force of law. So if Donald Trump decides to subvert the Justice Department, as he has obviously already done, as George Herbert Walker Bush did with Bill Barr back in 1992, if Donald Trump decides to subvert the Justice Department, he has the legal right to do it in as much as, well, you know, it's never been done this way before because of tradition, because of values. This is a man who has no use for tradition and no understanding even of values or scorn for them. So people say, oh, he's tweeting that he has powers he doesn't really have. Actually, he does have those powers. 
And he can do those things. And by the way, he is. See John Durham. Meanwhile, he's committing extortion right out in plain view, saying to Governor Cuomo of New York that if he doesn't drop investigations, well, here's his tweet. New York must stop all its unnecessary lawsuits and harassment, start cleaning itself up and lowering taxes. The lowering taxes part he obviously just threw in, but unnecessary lawsuits and harassment against who? Donald Trump. They're looking into tax fraud committed against the state of New York by, Trump, by the Trump Properties Corporation. And he's very upset about it. And he is holding hostage anybody from New York who wants to use the Trusted Traveler program where, you know, the, the uh, uh, global access, I believe it's called, where when you come into the United States, you go through a really, really fast line of customs or the TSA pre-line where you get to go to the, you know, because you're a trusted traveler, you get to go to the short line at the airports. Val Demings, who was one of the House managers for impeachment, really laid this out. She said he is, a, quote, expanding his abuse of power to blackmailing U.S. states, threatening millions of people he supposedly works for. In this case, he's holding New York State hostage to try to stop investigations into his prior tax fraud. In my opinion, this is extortion. Extortion is a subset of bribery. Bribery is one of the things for which the Constitution explicitly says a president should be impeached. I think it's time to crank it back up again, the impeachment. And then Steve Bannon comes out and says, yeah, this is exactly how a president's supposed to behave. See, Steve Bannon, like Bill Barr, is an authoritarian. He doesn't, these people don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in a Republican form of government, as in a republic. They believe in authoritarianism and autocracy. It's a Calvinistic worldview. They believe that you cannot trust the masses. You cannot trust average people. Their votes should not be counted. You should do everything you can to prevent them from voting, because God forbid average, you know, the rabble, as John Adams called them, be in charge of America. And Steve Bannon said, now he understands how to use the full powers of the presidency. The pearl clutchers better get used to it. Well, we're not going to get used to it. This is not normal. It's not healthy. It's not a democracy. It's not right. It's extraordinarily destructive to the United States. And now he's going after not just the judge in the Roger Stone case. He's going after a member of the jury. Jury tampering is a federal felony. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. You are listening to the program where despair is not an option. Join us. Get out there. Get active. Chuck in Beverly Shores, Indiana, listening to WCPT. Hey, Chuck, what's up? I often wonder if Trump voters actually want to live in a dictatorship. They want to be yes, led around. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. That, and, that, and that's the characteristic that you see in countries where authoritarians and autocrats rise to power as a consequence of the popular vote, essentially, you know, a populist uprising. When people are afraid, they gravitate towards somebody who says, I will protect you. I will keep you safe. And most people are willing to pay pretty much any price to feel safe. Safety is a human need. It's at the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's right down there with just slightly above, you know, food, drinking and eating and breathing and excreting. People will sacrifice a lot for safety. So the more Trump can convince people that they're in danger, whether it's they're in danger from Mexicans, which was a sales pitch in 2016, and the caravans are coming and all this kind of stuff, or whether it's going to be, oh, you're in danger from the Iranians if he tries to start a war with Iran, or you're in danger from socialism, from Democrats, whatever it is, the more he can convince people that they are in danger, the more likely they are to sign on with him enthusiastically. Trump voters actually know the difference between right and wrong good and evil, and I wish they would just stop eating whatever Trump puts on their plate. But see, in their minds, Chuck, safety trumps right or wrong. Survival is more important than morality. That's the bottom line. Extreme example of that is if somebody comes at you with a knife and you've got a gun in your hand, even though you know that it's wrong to kill people, you will shoot them. Not everybody would, but probably most people would, because survival trumps morality. 
survival trumps all kinds of things, and no pun intended. And that's the tool that Republicans are using. And that's one of the major messages that we got from the Trump campaign in 2016. Those brown people from Mexico are coming to rape your wives and daughters. They're coming to murder you. They're coming to rob your house. Uh, you have to have a gun. You have to have your gun rights so that when those brown people break into and black people break into your house, you can shoot them. And therefore, whenever something like that happened, the NRA would promote the hell out of it and the Republican Party would be right there with them. They are selling fear because people turn to the right. People become more conservative, more hardcore right wing, more authoritarian, more militaristic, more more beloving the police when they are afraid. And, and you can see this, you know, I mean, this was the core of Nixon's Southern strategy. This was the core of the war on drugs. These drug addled crazies are going to be breaking into your house and robbing you to get money to pay for their drugs, for their marijuana. This was, you know, Nixon was actually saying that back in the day. And that has, that, this is their principal tool, is fear. And it's a damn tough one to challenge because if somebody's convinced that they need to be afraid and you come along and say, no, you don't need to be afraid, that's not a legitimate fear, they're like, oh yeah, it is, I can feel it. It's a real tough one. My last point, my last question for you is, is speaking about leading by fear and hatred, there's an article by Christopher R. Browning a Holocaust historian and noted professor compares the U.S. to Nazi Germany. Thanks, Chuck. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Cliff in Cornish, Maine. Hey, Cliff, I understand your, um, your Senator Susan Collins is going to, she's just about hit her limit. She is going to issue a sternly worded phone call to Donald Trump today. Yes, real sternly. <laughs> We're holding our breath, right, Tom? Uh, no doubt. I mean, be careful. It's, it could shake the state. Anyhow, what's, yeah, what's exactly up, Cliff? Right. We know what's left of the Senate, and most of the Senate, is, now has moved into the, the area of fascism. And Trump, my concern and concerns of a lot of people is that this is, I think, the final stand of the corporatists in mm -hmm. this country. And I think they will do everything in their power, and Trump will work with them to keep him in power. How can we get him out of there? I know there's a, there's a couple of hurdles on the way between now and November, but he seems to be able to get around or jump over these hurdles. And my worry is that he's put enough people in positions like ICE, you know, the police force and ICE and, and all and whatever workers he's got down building the fences on the border. And I don't know how many military people are behind him, but he's, he, he could build enough power base to actually cause a coup and say, sorry, we have to suspend elections because of this or this or that. Right. You Not know, just could, he is. Those four people who resigned yeah. from the Justice Department, they will be yeah. replaced by Trump toadies. And that's the yeah, problem exactly is, that, right. is that, you know, over the short term, we saw this in Turkey. We saw, I mean, you go back to the 1930s. It's well documented. Read Schur's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. As people take principled positions or push back, they either get fired or they resign as part of the principled position, and they get replaced by toadies. And eventually, the entire institution is nothing but toadies. The one thing I kept waiting for uh, Rachel Maddow to talk about last night was the EPA. This same thing yeah. happened with the Environmental Protection Agency. When, when Scott Pruitt came in and said, we're not going to enforce the laws anymore and you're going to suck up to the big polluters and do whatever they want, there were a bunch of scientists at the EPA who resigned in protest. There was another group of scientists at the EPA who simply protested loudly. There were even some lawsuits that came out of people with the EPA. And what did Scott Pruitt do? He said, oh, all the scientists have to move to Kansas. We're going to move the scientific headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Kansas. And, you know, if your wife has a job here in D.C., you're just going to have to find another job. Oh, and we're also going to lay off about half the workforce. And, you know, he punished them. And so now you've got a workforce in a red state, you know, where they're getting new scientists in. This is how they do it. This is how they seize control of institutions when there isn't legal regulation to prevent them from doing that. And that's why when Trump is out of office, one of the things that we have to pay attention to is taking these institutional norms that, you know, for example, you don't politicize the Department of Justice and enshrine them in law. Yes, I agree. So my concern is what can we do if we can't get them out of office? How can we start to somehow on a national level organize for that moment? I mean, 
Two steps. I, I think we're two steps, I Cliff. Go ahead. Yeah. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. You, you think I, I really think that we're in a we're in a a process right now that a lot of people are becoming aware we have a criminal and a criminal element running running our country. Yes. We need to be able to have some kind of power ready to go up against what he's going to throw in our face. Uh, our legal system isn't doesn't seem to be working. How what what can we do as a people in in the U.S.? That's right. my concern. Two things that come to mind immediately. Now, uh, three things, actually. The third is, you know, find politicians who reflect your values and do everything you can to support them. If you can't send them five bucks, volunteer to f make phone calls for them or some, you know, whatever it may be. But but we need, you know, our, our Democratic politicians need your help. But the, the two really easy things are to identify groups that share your values that also share the values broadly of democracy and of the Democratic Party. So it may be moveon.org, it may be even like an animal rights group, or it might be a drinking liberally, which is a great group all across the nation, or, or screening liberally, where people get together and watch progressive movies, or it could be indivisible. I mean, there's, there's some Our Revolution that Bernie started, but is now completely independent of Bernie. All of these groups are doing just great work and you can find them online, you can join up, you can go to local meetups, you can participate with them. Look for those opportunities to participate if you're the kind of person who likes to get out or look for people who you can support. And then finally, and I think you know, number one on my list is register as a Democrat, participate with the Democratic Party, do whatever you can, show up the, at their meetings, and if you have the time, if you've got a, a night a month or whatever, and you have the time, start volunteering. Think about becoming a precinct committee person. You'll be the person who writes the Democratic Party plank from your state. You'll be the person who helps pick who the primary nominees are going to be so we can be sure to get a lot of progressives in. We need to take the Democratic Party back from the corporate element. The only way that happens is when each one of us individually gets involved. Cliff, thanks a lot for the call. Bill in Berwyn, Illinois. Hey, Bill, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. First time caller. Thank you. And I normally I listen to your podcast, so I don't usually have the time to call in. But something that's been on my mind that I think that the, the Democratic candidates could incorporate into their talking points, and that is that if they would stop how you know crimes that have been committed by this president and people on his administration and other presidents, like let's say for instance, like with Reagan, that if he would go after and prosecute these people start talking about it and saying that he's going to appoint an attorney general that will uh, issue the subpoenas that they've tried. Yeah, Elizabeth to. Warren has said that, that she wants to create. She's actually talking about it in a way that has that institutional hallmark of appropriate jurisprudence, as it were. She's saying that she wants to create an independent commission within or adjacent to the Department of Justice that will look at crimes committed within the Trump administration by officials in the Trump administration and follow through on those things. And, you know, I think that that's really important and I think more people need to be talking like that. Bill, thanks for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is In Defense of Public Service by Cedric L. Alexander. The subtitle is How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. This is from Chapter 1, Civil Servants and Servant Leaders. Unelected public servants are found at all levels of government, federal, state, and local. But the modern model for all is found in the federal employment systems. More specifically, it is in the concept and operation of the federal civil service system which governs the appointment and tenure of most federal workers. Those who believe that the unelected federal bureaucracy is a deep state covertly dedicated to the overthrow of elected government see the civil service as a fundamentally unconstitutional innovation, a monster of very recent creation. Such demonizing mythology aside, the truth is that the origin of the unelected government is found in the Constitution under Section 2 of Article 2. The article defines the powers of the executive branch, and the second paragraph of its section two assigns to the president the power to, quote, nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law, end quote. 
Thus, the president has the power to make all appointments not otherwise provided for in the Constitution. These are subject to the Senate's advice and consent unless Congress, by law, vests the appointment of such inferior officers as they may think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law or in the heads of departments." End quote. In other words, the unelected government, which I have called the fourth branch, is rooted in the Constitution through the powers that it grants either to the president or to Congress. In turn, Congress may grant the president, the courts, or heads of departments the power to hire unelected public servants. In all cases, however, the creation of the unelected government flows from the Constitution, the supreme authority and originating law of the nation. The framers of the Constitution recognized that the elected government of our republic was not in itself sufficient to govern us. It cannot alone get government done. It does not alone possess all the expertise necessary to lead, let alone manage, so vast an enterprise as a nation. If this was true in the late 18th century, it's even truer in the 21st century geopolitical and technological environment that is far more complex and that therefore requires a cadre of professionals possessing a wide variety of specialized skills, training, education, and experience. The Constitution does not call these appointments and hires a fourth branch, but that is what the Federal Service and other government workers constitute. De jure, in law, there is no fourth branch of U.S. government, yet it unquestionably exists de facto, in practice, in reality, in fact. Does the fourth branch compete with the three constitutionally established branches? No. It coexists with them as provided for in Section 2 of Article 2 of the Constitution itself. Those three constitutional branches are absolutely necessary to our republic, but they are not sufficient to it, as the framers acknowledged. Moreover, as I've already observed, for most people, most of the time, and in most situations, it is the member of the fourth branch who are, practically speaking, the government. They are the doers. They implement the policies created and interpreted by the three constitutional branches. What is more, although they do not decide or decree policy, they often influence it, not covertly, but by intention and design. The Constitution assigns the Senate the roles of advising on and consenting to most major presidential appointments, but members of the fourth branch do far more advising on a daily basis when it comes to providing the subject matter expertise and feedback necessary to formulate and modify policy decisions. As it turned out, following the coming into effect of the Constitution in 1789, the president, the chief executive, that is the elected official responsible for faithfully executing the laws, directly or indirectly appointed the unelected personnel whom he deemed necessary to execute government. Most of the agencies in which personnel of the unelected government served were created by the executive branch under Article II. And for a full 170 years after the Constitution was ratified, the president had the unquestioned authority to appoint and to terminate what were, in effect, employees of his branch, the executive branch. Indeed, in 1789, Congress explicitly voted, by narrow margin, that it had no authority of approval or disapproval of presidential decisions to terminate appointees. Only those few public positions that were independent of the executive branch, which today are known as independent agencies, were not subject to presidential appointment or termination. In 1829, Andrew Jackson took office as the seventh president of the United States. He was regarded as the apostle of the rights of the common man, and he made it clear that he intended to usher in an era of a more highly participatory democracy. During his two terms and under his influence, many states substantially extended the still males-only franchise by dropping property requirements from the ballot, and Johnson waged a mighty battle against the Second Bank of the United States in a successful effort to loosen credit and thereby free up sources for finance. In Defense of Public Service by Cedric Alexander. Lydia in Port Angeles, Washington, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Lydia, what's on your mind today? Joaquin Phoenix's speech, first of all, I applaud you for your veganism, and he shouted out for that. And alongside him, there was a native New Zealander, indigenous person, who was recognizing the land that they were, the tribe's ancestral territory, mm -hmm. when they were 
took over in Hollywood. So I've been thinking a lot on Native terms lately because of this northern British Columbia pipeline of the gas pipeline. Well, also, that Trump, doing all Trump just blew up a whole bunch of Native burial sites and sacred sites down on the Texas-Mexico border in order to build his wall. I know that. It's so disgraceful. I was just considering that when you go to Seattle, I told you last time that my husband's great-great-grandfather was Chief Seattle, mm -hmm. and I know you would win a lot of hearts and support if you could acknowledge that that is the ancestral land of the Duwamish people who lost their federal recognition and are told that they don't exist, even though they use Chief Seattle's portrait on every news program that has anything to do with the city of Seattle. The Duwamish people. I'll try to remember that, Lydia. I can't make any guarantees, but it, but you just sure. you just told a lot of people, so that's a great start. And, <laughs> and of course, we've talked about this before. So yeah. Thank you so okay. much. Okay, thank you, Lydia. Great to hear from you, Michael in Imperial Beach, California. Hey, Michael, what's up? Did you ever hear of the 1954 Treaty of Grenada? Treaty of Grenada? No. no, never heard of it. G R E A D A. Okay. Oh, Grenada. No, I haven't heard of that either. Supposedly, February 20th through 21st in 1954, Eisenhower went on a vacation to Palm Springs. He suddenly went missing, and he went to Murcock Air Force Base, which is now Edwards Air Force Base, and his excuse was he had to have emergency dental surgery. Now, supposedly, Eisenhower and a bunch of people, you know, his close associates, they met with the Greys, and you know what that is, and they cut a deal for technology. Do you think the powers that be are finally going to come out and reveal to us that, yes, extraterrestrials do exist? Oh, and by the grays, you're talking about ETs. Michael, I don't know. I suspect that if Eisenhower had met with people from outer space, that there would be some record of it somewhere. But who knows? Michael, thanks for the heads up. Valentine's Day is upon us. Imagine you're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. Glancing in the mirror, you notice those wrinkles, those large under-eye bags, crow's feet. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's my secret weapon? And there it is, Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes, and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles literally disappearing in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to triplexiderm.com and enter voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter voices at triplexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code voices. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter voices at triplexiderm.com. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program, all three hours of our program, anytime you'd like? Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show, anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Tom Hart. Thank you. On the line with us right now is Professor Richard Wolf, the economist and co-founder of Democracy at Work, author of numerous books. His latest is Understanding Socialism, DemocracyWork.info and RDWolf with two Fs.com are his websites. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here, and good luck with your flu. Yeah, thank you. I'm on the tail end of it, so I think it's, I think it's, it's getting better. I shared a couple of stories with you in, in email, and let me just pop a couple of these stats out, and then uh, I, I'm rather hysterical about that. I'm worried about this. This concerns me tremendously, and I'd like you to either explain it or talk me down off the ledge here. The first is from WolfStreet.com. Auto loans and lease balances have surged to a new record of $1.33 trillion. And subprime loans in that category, these are people with credit scores below 620, have exploded at a breathtaking rate. And the delinquencies now are up to $66 billion. They're up 15% from just the last year. We're looking at delinquencies in this area 
that are mind-boggling. The total market for these kind of loans is $293 billion, and $68 billion of them are more than 90 days delinquent. That's about a quarter of all subprime auto loans are delinquent. And then to make it even more bizarre, these things have been packaged into asset-based securities, which is what shut down the entire economy in 2008 when mortgages were being done this way. And now it's these car loans being done this way. And then on top of that, this piece from Raw Story and from DC Report by Maureen Neffen Duffy, where she talks about the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, which regulates things like, you know, if these things are being resold as securities, it's supposed to regulate this stuff. Trump has picked apparently all five members of the commission. They just voted three to two in favor of leaving a giant hole in Dodd-Frank so that the big four banks and just the big four banks can continue to do this during 2016. Apparently, they're doing the same thing with credit cards that these other companies are doing with car loans. They opened 110 million new credit card accounts about 50% more than in 2010, and they're also big in the credit default swap business, only this time it's consumer debt. I mentioned car loans a minute ago, now also we've got credit cards. The Federal Reserve valued outstanding credit card loans at $1.2 trillion. Citibank, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Bank of America handled 90% of U.S. swap trades. This is a $300 trillion business when we have, what, a $20 trillion economy? And the big picture reveals, and I'll end with this, quote, a financial infrastructure that mimics the failed financial engineering created in the mortgage markets leading up to the 2008 financial crash. And and that's from the guy who was the deputy to Brooksley Bourne, the chair of the Consumer Finance CFTC during Bill Clinton's era. So explain this, you know, what does all this mean and what could its consequences be? Okay. It's a mixture of good news and horrific news. So I don't know if I'm going to get you off the ledge, but maybe I'll move you around on the ledge a little bit. Here we go. The thing that the people say who have to defend what you've just described, the only thing they can say is that the auto loan business, the credit card business, And you could even add the student loan business, which, by the way, has just as scary a scenario about it as the other two that you just described. What the people who defend all this say is that the total size of these markets, uh, credit markets, is smaller than the mortgage loan business. That's because more Americans have taken out more money to buy homes than have done all those other things in the way of credit. Other than that, they have nothing to say. So let me pick up at that point where they fall silent. Yes, it's true. The size that they point to is correct. And so on one level, if, if terrible things begin to unravel in the credit card business, the auto loan business, the student loan, and all of them have been packaged into securities sold around the world, it won't have the immediate massive effect that the crash in 2008 did. But it is exactly the same story, and it's the same explanation. In the crash of 2000, if people can go back that far in their memories, so-called dot-com crash, one of the things the government did to prevent a full-blown depression was bring interest rates very, very low. And what that did was make all the people who hustle other people's money look elsewhere, where can I get better rate of return now that interest rates are so low? And lending to people with dubious credit to whom you could charge fantastic interest rates was where they went. Exactly the same thing is happening now that we have, again, a 10-year period of unusually low interest rates to prevent the crash of 2008 from being a full-blown depression. So everywhere where wealthy people have money, they are pressing their advisors, their hedge funds to find lucrative interest-returning profitable investments and lending to poor people or people with credit scores below 620 who have to pay higher interest rates because they're in that pool has attracted risky investments in the car business, in the credit card business, and so on. If those begin to fall apart, the contagion from that will lop over into the mortgage market. Let me give you a simple example. 
I would say half of my students who are carrying debt that they cannot ever pay back, which they tell me, is not really debt for them as students. They are helping out their parents by borrowing it for, as students money that their parents couldn't get from anything they could borrow from or would have to pay even higher interest rates. So the actual boundary among these different categories is a lot more porous than you might think of uh, if the statistics are not explained. Bottom line, we are now in a full-fledged credit bubble. The government is pouring money into the economy again, like it did before the crash of 2008. That money is sloshing around and producing stock prices that are unconnected to the underlying real economy. And a good bit of that money is flowing into the hands of people with the poorest credit and therefore the highest likelihood of being unable to pay back. We have the highest levels of debt, personal, corporate, and government, in our history as a nation, which means a problem anywhere through the lending system will be a problem everywhere. Anyone who takes seriously the history of these successive bubbles has to look at the current situation and clap their hand on their forehead, as you have done, and said, oh, my God, are we so backward that we're heading into it again? And the answer to that question is yes. Wow. So what is it about these politicians that makes this happen? I mean, you know, this easy credit thing in the late 90s, early 2000s that led to the crash of 2008, a very similar thing, I believe, in the 1920s, the roaring 20s that led to the crash of 1929. And now you got Trump demanding that Jay Powell lower interest rates even further, which would jack credit up even higher. What is it? That's right. They never learn. They're under the pressure of the people who have the money, who want that money to grow, who think of the system as a growth animal that will always make them more money. They put enormous pressure on the corporations whose stock they mostly own to deliver the rising rates of return. In a society like ours, where a majority of the people barely make it from month to month, producing more goods for people who can't afford them already and who are in debt over their heads is not a paying proposition, so you lend them money so they can buy a bit more, you charge big interest. Look, Mr. Johnson over in England yesterday fired his Secretary of the Treasury equivalent, the exchequer, because he wasn't willing to pump up the economy with funny money the way Mr. Trump had led him to believe is the road to success. That's what politicians do in the system we have, and you're going to have to change that system if you expect the people at the top of it to behave otherwise. You know, the, the solution to this was supposed to be Dodd-Frank. Why isn't it helping? Because it's exactly the same history again as we saw. You know, out of the Great Depression came the Banking Act. It created a firewall between investment banks and commercial Glass banks. Glass-Steagall. That's right. And it did a whole host of the other things that Dodd-Frank did. And over the immediate period afterwards. The, the banks had exactly the same strategy they've had this time. You begin by evading the law, which is not that difficult to do. Then you turn with your political paid folks to weaken the law. And when finally you're capable of being strong enough politically, you get rid of the law, as they did with Glass-Steagall that was signed out of existence in the 1990s by, it might be worth remembering, Bill Clinton as president. You're seeing exactly the same now. They delayed. There are parts of Dodd-Frank passed years ago that still have not been implemented because they're studying how best to do that. Oh, That's geez. pure evasion. Yeah. And so you're seeing now the weakening and it is. It is the same scary. So we process. have 30 seconds, Professor Wolf. What can we do as individuals and as a society? Two things. One, learn about this stuff. Pay attention to the critics. There's enough of them out there in all walks of life so that you're aware of what is being hustled by you. But the second one is to recognize that punishing a banker or passing this or that law, we've been there, we've done that. Much more basic change in this society is needed. Yes, it's scary, but not doing it ought to make you even more scared. Okay, thank you, Professor Richard Wolf, rdwolf.com and democracyatwork.info, and his most recent book, Understanding Socialism. Professor Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom, and have a good trip. Thank you very much. Always great talking with you.
this is the big thing. It's the key to the whole Republican tax scam thing is that for people who don't have control over their own income, for people who work for a living, taxes are completely irrelevant. When taxes, uh, income taxes anyway, well, actually, even things like sales taxes, the value added tax in Europe is the perfect example of it. When taxes go up, decreasing take-home pay, wages go up to raise take-home pay back to what the labor market defines. And the labor market is largely a function of supply and demand. So taxes only matter if you're wealthy or have control over your own income. If you control your own income, you can say, okay, um, my tax went up 10%, I'm gonna pay myself 10% more. But if you don't control your own income, then you're in that labor market. And that's, that's how it works. And it's just, it's like, how do you get that through to people? I, I, I don't know, it's crazy. Anyhow, Dave in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, it says here you disagree with me, what's up? I suppose I sort of disagree with you, but my question was, if your theory is correct that an employer only looks at the take-home pay, that that kind of creates the, the supply and demand for the That's workers. also true of the employee, yeah. Okay, yeah, I would definitely agree on the employee. But if that's true, would a tax cut not create more jobs? Because then an employer used to have to, let's say he's making a $10 an hour take-home job. Well, he used to have to pay that employee Fifteen dollars an hour to create that job. Well, right. now he's five went to taxes. Eleven. Yeah. Right. So, does it not benefit the employee in that sense? Well, the employer would end up with more money when they lower wages because taxes got lowered. But I'm talking about job creation. Right. You're misunderstanding what creates jobs, Dave. And I say this respectfully. The thing that drives the economy, that accounts for more than 70% of all economic growth in any country, is what economists refer to as aggregate demand. Aggregate demand is a fancy way of saying it is, you know, aggregate, it's all the people and their ability to demand things, to buy things, to want things and actually pay for them. And that's what drives the economy. People buy things and as a consequence of their buying them, somebody else has to be there to sell them and somebody else has to be there to make them. So demand is what drives an economy. When Reagan came along with supply side, he said, no, no, that's not true. Let's flip it upside down. It's actually supply that drives an economy. And if there's more stuff in a store, people will buy more stuff. But that's been completely blown up. George Herbert Walker Bush was right when he called that voodoo economics. It's completely silly. People don't buy more stuff just because there's more stuff available. People buy what they can afford to buy, period, full stop, by and large. I mean, you know, people will go into debt, but still, there's a limit. So because demand is what drives an economy, when people's take-home pay goes up over a short period of time, there will be an increase in economic activity to what you're saying. And there's a certain logic to what you're saying, and you're right. The problem is it's only short term. We saw this. This was one of the ways that Barack Obama got us out of sliding into another Great Depression in 2009. It was they cut the Social Security tax by 1%. So everybody in America who makes under $120,000 a year got a 1% pay raise for two years. And with that extra 1%, what they did is they spent that money. And spending that money, that's increasing aggregate demand, spending that money then stimulated the economy by 2 or 3%. It was, you know, it's substantial. I mean, there's a huge multiplier effect because I go out and I buy something and now, you, you know, the clerk in that store gets a paycheck and the person who shipped the stuff to the store, you know, the truck driver gets a paycheck and the, per, and the factory guy makes a, gets a paycheck and on it goes. It echoes through the economy. But the problem is if you make that tax cut permanent, that even 1%, but you know, we certainly saw this back in the back in the 80s with Reagan. Actually, you know, there were a couple of times when he actually cut taxes on working people, and when he did, yeah, there was a boost in the economy for a year or so. But then what happened was wages started declining because the labor market was no longer in balance, as it were. The employees were getting more than employers had to pay them. And employers, sadly, I suppose, or maybe not. I mean, this is just, you know, David Ricardo 101, basic economics. It's called David Ricardo's Iron Law of Labor. That, And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why 
countries control immigration, right? You increase the supply of labor, you, you decrease the demand for it, you decrease the price of labor. So when you have lots and lots of people competing for a job, wages go down. When there's fewer people competing for that job, wages go up. You know, I guess I kind of got off on a digression. Have I made sense here to you, Dave? Yet? Have I answered your question? I think you made a pretty strong point. I can concede that. I, I don't totally buy into that the tax cuts don't help the middle class at all. I don't think that all employers necessarily fall under, you know, how you describe it, that they look at the take-home rate for competition. I think, but your point is well taken. They do, whether it's, a, whether it's a law firm or whether it's a gas station, they're going to pay the minimum amount that they have to pay in order to get competent employees to do the job that's there. And those employees will do that based on what the labor marketplace is, and that's based on their skill set and things like that. But, you know, the bottom line is when you cut taxes on working people and you increase their pay, it will stimulate the economy. It will give them a little extra money, but it will not last more than three years. And you go back and you look at the tax rates on working class people and you see that three year bounce both up and down. It's the reason, very simply, why in Denmark people are paid 18 bucks an hour and change to work at McDonald's. The reason why is because, you know, eight dollars of that is going to taxes. And so their take-home pay is ten bucks an hour. How, then I don't understand how you can operate at McDonald's. Well, and this is the point that Grover Norquist made. Instead of charging three bucks for a hamburger, they charge five bucks for a hamburger. But the fact is, at the end of the day, when you balance everything out, what you've got is a standard of living. In other words, the take-home pay, and you take the cost of living, you've got a standard of living that is that is acceptable to everybody, that works for everybody. And in fact, the standard of living in Denmark is higher than the standard of living is here in the United States. Plus, everybody has free college. In fact, the government pays you $200 a month to go to college. The government will provide housing for you to go to college. Everybody has free health care. There are no deductibles. There are no co-pays. Drugs are free. Vision is taken care of. Dental is taken care of. All those things are there. And people say, well, how can you do that? Well, people pay high taxes. Companies pay high taxes. But doesn't that mean that everybody is impoverished? No, because the wages go up and prices go up. And, and what happens is the, the economy simply achieves a new equilibrium. So that basically people are taking home what they were taking home before, but they have added in the process free health care and free education. And by the way, free child care, too. So I certainly appreciate you taking my call. I'd, I'd love to talk more about pros and cons of socialism in the future, but uh, okay. thanks for taking my call. Thank you, Dave. Good to hear from you. Leon in James City, Florida. Hey, Leon, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. It's been a long time since I talked to you, but anyway, Eisenhower would be called a socialist today. Of course he would. The GI Bill, free college for the GIs. We had a standing army of 11 million, and uh, all those could have been dumped into the job market without good programs and We'd had another big recession. Yep. Uh, the interstate highways were built by him, infrastructure, yep. low interest uh, housing. And schools and hospitals all across the country were built by Eisenhower with yep. federal funding. And he warned against the military industrial complex. Yep. And before Reagan, the most prosperous middle class we've ever had. You're absolutely right. And in fact, those three decades of the 50s, 60s, and 70s were three decades where we had consistent GDP growth of over 3%, and we had consistent growth in the wealth and income of the American middle class that, that actually went up faster than the wealth and income of the top 1%. And then, of course, Reagan came into office in 81 and, and literally reversed that process. And that was the end of the increase in wages. That was the end of the increase in, in the wealth of the American middle class. And it was the beginning of a draining of 7 to $15 trillion out of the middle class that pours into the coffers of the top 1%. Spot on, yeah. Leon. Very, very well said. Thank you. Don in, Herring in Harrington, Delaware. Hey, Don, what's up? Hey, Tom. We uh, followed your instructions. You, you always say get involved. So uh, my wife and I volunteered for uh, Jessica Scarane's uh, campaign to canvas every Sunday. She's running against in a primary in Delaware for uh, U.S. Senate against Senator Coons, which we all know Senator Coons is a corporate Democrat who uh, the friends of the Republicans. Uh, Jessica is a uh, Bernie crab, believes in Medicare for all. Coons is against it. She's, uh, again, an FDR Democrat. Um, mm -hmm. She's going up against $2 million, and, and uh, her website is just for Delaware. 
Facebook.com. She's a 36-year-old gal running for the first time against, against him. That's great. I don't know enough about the local race to comment on it, or for that matter, about Chris Coons. Um, but, you know, good on you, Don, for finding a candidate that you really care about and jumping in and doing what you can. And good luck to JessForDelaware.com, you said? Yes. Okay. Thank you All very right, much for the call and, and a tip of the hat to you. Congratulations. Lewis in Seattle. Hey, Lewis, what's up? I wanted to make one point that you may have touched on a little bit already since you guys were talking about Bernie and everything, but. It's my view that Bernie is the only candidate that can beat Trump, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And the reason that is, is because fundamentally, he is a brand that people can trust. And he's the only type of brand that people that did vote for Trump before would actually vote for on the Democratic side, because I don't think they trust the Democratic establishment. And right. I'm, he's a, he's an outsider and a disruptor. That was that was my rant that the previous guy was referring to. And I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And I think that it's important that people talk about that. Thanks for the call. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on Anything Goes Friday and Max in Monroe, North Carolina. Hey, Max, what's on your mind? They had the State of the Union. Trump was saying about how the unemployment, as we all could see, is uh, real low. Mm -hmm. But none of the Democrats have said that, hey, you know what? One of the reasons is we have a low participation rate, and I'm pretty sure it's down 5%. So that's millions and millions of people. And then we don't have the amount of people coming into the workforce that we actually had 10 years ago. We That's actually correct. have a lot less. We actually have people leaving the workforce right now, Max. Uh, you know, the baby boomers are aging out of the workforce very, very rapidly. But what you've identified is the key to understanding this, which is if every person who works worked one job, then when unemployment goes down, more people would have jobs. But because you have to work two and three jobs right now. I mean, at least half of the Uber drivers that, you know, when I'm traveling, pick me up, you know, say, well, you know, how's the Uber? Well, it's a gig. I do it on the weekends or I do it in the evenings. You know, I'm, I'm actually a bartender or I'm actually, a, you know, fill in the blank. Right. Um, so if if somebody's working two jobs, then that, you know, that's reduced unemployment without adding another person to the labor pool. So what we're seeing, I believe, in the low unemployment numbers and the low workforce participation numbers is the fact that this economy, remember when George W. Bush was campaigning in 2004 for re-election and he had this woman up on stage and, and he says, what do you do? And she says, well, actually I work three jobs. And he says, oh, three jobs. Isn't that all American? Isn't that great? And he applauded her and everybody, you know, laughed and applauded. That's where we're at now. But I don't understand why the Democrats don't bring that out. This they the do. It's why. just that, you know, it's 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 a wonky argument. This is this is one of the problems with our political dialogue is is you really have to reduce things to four words or fewer or at the very most a single sentence. And, uh, you know, it, or or it doesn't hit. I mean, people people who are watching their earnings you know, essentially frozen, they're watching their their standard of living decline. They're watching their debt go up. And yet they're hearing on TV and on the radio every five minutes and all over Facebook with Trump's ads that the economy is wonderful. Start thinking, well, gee, I guess the economy must be wonderful. Um, no, <laughs> they're ignoring what's in, right in front of them and they're believing the media. Max, thanks for the call. Tim in Longtree, Colorado. Hey, Tim, what's up? What I would like to hear, because you've totally gone politics, is little bits of tidbits of information coming in again, like Squiggle's toothpaste. Oh, yeah. I bought it. Yeah, over five years ago when it was on your show, and I heard that guy call in, and you you had your recommendation. And my wife's teeth were translucent green. They're white now. Wow. Yeah, I... And mine are about... Just, huh? just to tell this story, back 10, 15 years ago, a long time ago, in fact, I think it might have even been before I started this show, I read an article in one of the scientific journals about how the bacteria Streptococcus mutans that causes tooth decay is killed 
by xylitol. Xylitol is an alcohol, actually, but it tastes like sugar. Body metabolizes it like an alcohol, and it kills this bacteria. They were doing experiments on giving people, you know, xylitol. And I searched around, and I found that there's a company that makes a toothpaste that's like 99% xylitol. It's almost pure xylitol with a little peppermint in it and some abrasive. And it's called Squiggles. And I've been using that stuff for all those years since then. And uh, boom, I mean, the cavities just stopped happening. Right, 36%. 36%, is that the percentage? Thank you. Yeah, I don't have a tube of it in front of me, and it's been a long time since I actually read the fine print on it. But I use it every night before I go to bed. And, uh, and, and uh, another one up. where, and he quit taking showers, and he had a motorcycle accident, ripped his face apart. Yikes. Oh, yeah, that collar. Quickly, it healed. Yeah, he was talking about the microbiome. I have not yet quit taking showers, but, but I remember the call. Jim, I'm sorry, we're out of time, but thank you for the call. And uh, yeah, every now and then, you know, a little bits of trivia slip through that are actually really, really useful for people. Thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it, and tell your friends how to find progressive media, please. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.